Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. This Spotlight series looks at the crimes of infrastructure, at who benefits and who is harmed in their making, and how. In Season 1, we'll be hearing about a mine in South Africa, a train line in Palestine, the infamous Guantanamo Bay prison, and a central bus station in Tel Aviv. And across the series, we'll hear what infrastructure tells us about those big, enduring political questions. Capitalism, colonialism and racism, and how people can and do resist. So we have a past, we have an effervescent present, and we have a future. I looked at the crossing through the Jordan River and the crossing of Yemek, and I believe that one day this train will be a peace train. With these words, on the 8th of November 2016, Israel's then-Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, launched the Nuha Emek Railway, or Jezreel Valley Train. The event was held at one of the line's new stations in Afula, a Jewish periphery town in the center of the Galilee. Announcing Israel's future peace train to the world, he claimed to be ushering in what he called a new Middle East, an exciting new world of fast, shiny trains and economic partnerships channeling peace and prosperity across the region. For anyone watching, and to be honest, not many people were watching, this seemed an absurd statement. Despite a billion dollars being poured into the project, the entire line is only 65 kilometers long. It serves nine stations and takes a total of 45 minutes to go from one end to the other. To add to the absurdity, the single-track rail means only one train at a time can travel the route, from Haifa's central stations, which includes two port terminals, through Israel's economic and political backwaters in the north of the country, an area that Israel has, by the way, intentionally left undeveloped. But that's another story for another time. And then at a small town called Beit She'an, four kilometers shy of the border with Jordan, the train suddenly just ends. Between this reality and the fantasy conjured by Netanyahu stands the very real physical obstacle of the Jordan River and Valley, and a complete lack of political will or financial backing on both Israeli and Jordanian sides of the customs gateway that currently connects their economic supply chains. There is something so disjointed and unreal about this train to nowhere, situated at the helm of a fantasy of a connected Middle East. And yet there was and is so much invested in it. And I couldn't help but ask, like many others, what is this fantasy really about? But this episode isn't actually asking why or even how the train could bypass these obstacles, or what kinds of concrete disruptions and erasures to territory, politics, or communities are required to make it work. I'm interested instead in what would happen if the fantasy becomes reality. You know, what seems obvious now, looking back six years later, is that this train is and always has been about making Israel normal, which also means making Palestine disappear. This is Material Crimes. That's Netanyahu's peace train speech again. He's describing how his experience of looking out the train's window at perfectly groomed meadows and tilled fields triggered a flashback to his youth 49 years earlier as a young soldier. The mud, the empty space, travel was impossible. And he remembers thinking about how the Ottomans, although he calls them the Turks, had this Ha'emek railway, and we, the great land of Israel, didn't. This was the moment his dream of the Ha'emek began. Over the next 15 minutes, Netanyahu continues to wax nostalgic about this train, traveling with it across time and space, from Israel's present, where all parts of the country are connected through ingenuity, development, security, power, investment— to Israel's potential but as yet unattainable future, where this tiny, scrappy, and talented state of Jews steps into its destiny as the driving force behind Middle East economic and political life, a harbinger of peace. In the same breath, he links all of this to the grand narrative of the Ottomans' Hijazi Railway and the branch they built in 1905 to connect Haifa on the Mediterranean to Dara in Syria, to Amman in Jordan, and then on to the holy city of Medina in what is now Saudi Arabia. He talks about Israel as finally taking up this historical inheritance as the land bridge that connected Asia and Africa. And it clicks as he fantasizes about the promise of a straight line across land and sea connecting European and Asian supply lines. He's also rewriting the past, present and future in which this newly connected Israel exists on a continuum with both British and Ottoman empires, 
erasing Palestine in the process, which in his imagining doesn't and never did exist. I talked to Dr. Omar Jabari Salamanca about this. Omar is a brilliant Palestinian Spanish geographer at the Open University in Brussels and one of the first people to write about infrastructure as fundamental to the colonization of Palestine. So Israeli circulation of goods and persons that is enabled through these like, you know, large infrastructure projects, whether it is the port or whether it is the train or whether it is something else and at various scales, whether it is inside Palestine or it is within the region and the global context to which, you know, Israel-Palestine belong to. In contrast to this sort of like immobilization in which Israel uses infrastructure to sort of capture and, and use infrastructures to create and, and produce these carceral geographies. And so it's very interesting to see that contrast between the, the logics of circulation vis-a-vis the logics of immobilization. Those existing and sort of historical projects that have been in a way recuperated, upgraded and expanded, like the, the new railway line that connects Haifa to Jordan, were used as a way to create an imaginary of peace, uh, but also an imaginary of economic development that would be able to engulf the entire region through this connection of Israel and Palestine with, uh, with the Middle East. And, and I think it's interesting also to kind of consider the, the contrast between the fantasies and the frictions of these national and global infrastructure circuits. The fantasies are always put in print, but in reality, the politics on the ground create these frictions that make it very difficult for these projects to be successful. So it's just kind of like an opening for something that is laid out and upgraded, but that is still uh, needs to have a lot of other processes in place in order for it to function. Lala Khalili is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. She has spent the last seven to eight years interrogating these processes through the lens of global maritime infrastructures and how these are embedded in the society, states and economies of the Middle East. She adds this other layer to what Omar is already telling us, that the kind of cross-border transport infrastructures that Netanyahu is fantasizing the hammock will be part of are actually imbued with a huge amount of power. So one of the things that's really about, uh, interesting about infrastructure is the extent to which it is embedded in forms of power and governance, um, that its construction and uh, implementation and use are uh, irrevocably um interwoven with power relations um, in, in a whole lot of different ways. So all of those infrastructures that uh, facilitate mobility tend to also operate across national borders in really interesting and complex sort of ways. And precisely because they operate across national borders, uh, they tend to be subject to sets of relations that in a previous time would have been directly and explicitly colonial and in the post-colonial era are often imbued, saturated with neocolonial relations of power. So if we listen to Netanyahu with Omar and Lala's words in mind, he's literally telling us everything we need to know about this project to turn a train to nowhere into a train to everywhere, and why we should be paying careful attention to what seems like an innocuous backwater railway, nowhere near current trade or logistics infrastructures that connect land and sea routes in the region and equally far from the epicenters of violence that come to mind when we think about Palestine, which, as we'll see, is part of the point. And yet, no one was looking. Perhaps this is why I started to. I should probably introduce myself. My name is Shari Plonsky, and I'm a lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. I'm a Jewish, Israeli, and Canadian woman, but also an anti-Zionist scholar, and my work looks at the material ways that these global forces of colonialism and capitalism operate in and get embedded in Palestine. This is a recording I made while sitting on the Hetemic train on the 24th of May, 2021. I'm looking out the window, seeing what Netanyahu probably also saw on his maiden voyage. The view is incredible. Moving away from the brand new automated Haifa Bayport station, where I caught the train, Gigantic cranes and towering mountains of shipping containers, the literal feeling of being lost in an urban junkyard, are receding into the background as the train moves eastward into the central Galilee. I'm immediately engulfed by green fields and mountains. Every once in a while, you pass a Palestinian village or Jewish-gated community, but in the distance, there's nothing but green space. Most of Israel's train infrastructure follows the coastline and other north-south routes. 
This is because it is still to some degree organized around existing pathways created through the British Mandate's development of supply and security chains in the eastern Mediterranean. From its campaigns during the First World War until they left in 1948, they were completely focused on the sea and the desire to connect these new spoils of war to the rest of its empire. But the root of the Ha'emek follows an earlier infrastructural project, as we heard from a nostalgic Bibi, that of the Ottoman-built Hejaz, which had a different focus, connecting and cutting through the Arabian hinterlands. This was a German-engineered train whose track was laid by a mix of conscripted Ottoman soldiers and local Arab laborers, a train with its own story of violence and destruction in which landscapes and communities were ripped apart and remade. Yet despite the branding of the contemporary Israeli railways part of this history of Arabian connectedness, the railway, which was called the Palestine Railways after it was engulfed into the British Empire, has always been a story of and belonging to Palestine. Hitherto in this series, we have shown you Palestine in its happier moods. Today we bring to the screen the reason for the sense of security enjoyed by the thousands of Jewish emigrants, the British troops, ever watchful, ever protective. Palestine is in the headlines again. Sir Harold McMichael, the High Commissioner, called on Britain's Colonial Secretary, Mr Malcolm MacDonald, to discuss the situation in that troubled and troublesome country. British troops are there to keep order. But outrages continue despite the sternest... Critical scholars of colonial and capitalist infrastructures investigating trains, logistics, ports, factories, sewage systems, electricity grids, and so on across the world are all teaching us to dig beneath the physical armor of railway infrastructures and to trace their genealogy back to its makers, you know, its funders, the ghosts that actually still haunt them, in order to better understand how space and life intersect with the needs and movements of capital, of empire, of colonial governments, especially in a place like Israel in the present. So I went to one such scholar, Professor Manu Karuka, who writes about what he calls railroad colonialism in his incredible book, Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad. We talked about how to think about the Ha'emic train in terms of its relationship to imperial circuits, and what it was and still is doing to Palestine through the lens of his research in North America. The railroad is understood to be the vehicle for the frontier process itself, which distinguishes the U.S., and maybe we can extend it to Canada, um, from Europe. It's understood to be this vehicle of progress. And it's uh, understood to be a vehicle of connection. And the more I read about it and studied it across the colonized world, it was really interesting to find that railroads weren't vehicles of connection, but actually vehicles of isolation. And railroads, as, as I could really find them, were built for two primary reasons. One was to take resources from some interior place to a coast where they could be shipped or where they could be moved. And that interior place could be a mine in some place, you know, the nickel or tin mining, gold, copper, or it could be timber or agricultural resources. So this was the case in North America. This was the case in the scramble for Africa. This is the case in the railroad building that was taking place in China. And so that's one reason. And the other reason is to move troops really quickly. So the railroads facilitate military occupation. And these two things, I mean, they, they blend into each other. It's no surprise then that during the British campaigns in World War I, Palestine railways moved with the conquest of territory, reaching from Kantara and Port Said at the edge of the Suez Canal, upwards along the coast through Gaza and all the way up to Haifa by 1918. It then shifted eastwards, with General Allenby reaching Samach within days. In the period of railroad colonialism that I found, you know, these are two reasons why railroads were being built. Not to connect, but actually to... At this point, Manu begins describing this other really important aspect of 19th century railroad building, which is playing out at the time in African, Asian, and North American contexts. You know, this idea of inter-imperial competition. And this resonates so much with what ends up happening in the Middle East and North Africa in the 20th where French, Ottoman, and British empires were competing for control over capital flows and wanting to find ways to disrupt any connections ordinary people might have had across imperial boundary lines. And they did this in really tangible ways, for example, by cutting through traditional trade routes and using different measurements for rail gauges. And by the way, this is why you'll still have different gauges on tracks today. So the line in Jordan, let's say, doesn't actually connect with the line in Palestine. And this kind of partitioned pre-existing relations of trade among and across different African communities, tribal and imperial communities, different state forms, different cultures, where they had, I mean, going back for generations, you know, histories and interrelationships of trade, they're now isolated, where they're trading purely within one imperial network 
or another. So it's important to keep this in mind, especially when we talk about Palestine. These imperial lines of connection produced deeply alienated islands, islands of dispossession alongside islands of accumulation, which went hand in hand with security, whiteness, Europeanness, and violence. Haifa in the north of Palestine is the terminus of the oil pipeline across the desert from Iraq. In 25 years of British rule, Haifa has become one of the major ports of the eastern Mediterranean. And when we listen to archival soundscapes like this one, which tell us all about these amazing new infrastructure projects turning Haifa into a hub of development and economic success, what we actually need to be paying attention to is what they destroyed and the ongoing violence they helped enable. I'm going to come back to Omar now. It's very important to consider how infrastructure were central to the politics of the mandate. And they were central in ways in which they privileged Jewish Anglo capital initiatives. And I think the concessions is key. The concessions for railways, the concessions for ports, the concessions for mining, for electricity and, and water exploitation that often went uh, hand in hand. And so that meant that Palestinians were unable to make use of these essential and critical means of production and, and social reproduction. They were uh, literally put aside and they were refused. It's not that Palestinians did not have the knowledge or the technology or the capital necessary to develop infrastructure development. Is that the British mandate was uh, not willing to allow them to use these concessions and to develop that you know, necessary economic infrastructure. At the same time, this moment in the history of Palestine is remembered, particularly by Palestinians, with deep longing, a different kind of nostalgia that is pregnant with loss and possibility. I talked about this with Dr. Yara Hawari, a Palestinian scholar, activist, and writer whose recent novella, The Stone House, is very much reckoning with Palestinian subjecthood through the lens of time, as something that is constantly folding in on itself. The thing about the the train line is that you'll hear Palestinians often talk about that, you know, we could once get a train from Yaffa to Beirut to, and, and beyond. And it's a, it's a reflection of this deep desire to reconnect with the Arab world. We've been cut off for so long, so many decades. We had all these walls built around us and it's, it's really a sort of, it's a fantasy for a lot of Palestinians, this idea of going from, you know, yeah, from Jerusalem to Damascus to Beirut. These are places that are not far at all geographically, but in reality, they're near impossible to reach. But the train line is something I think that does feature heavily in Palestinian nostalgia. It's just this idea of, of ease of movement. And I think nostalgia is such a powerful emotion and it gets such a bad rap. But I think nostalgia actually reflects something more important. It reflects what people, what's missing in the present, you know, what people desire and what's not there. And that nostalgia for the train line, it's a desire for a connection, a desire for, you know, ending the isolation that Palestinians have been in uh, for so long. Let's keep these ideas of connection and alienation, disruption and partition in mind as we reach the end of the first part of the story, the physical end to the Palestine train, and the tangible end to a connected Palestine. Meanwhile, in Palestine, outside the all-Jewish city of Tel Aviv, two mines partly derail the Cairo Haifa Express. Alleged to have been planted by members of the Irgun gang, police arrested two men immediately after the attack. The Jewish engine driver of the train was killed. British troops traveling in two of the five derailed coaches were not seriously injured. Irgun have threatened to destroy every yard of railway in Palestine. In 1946, and then again in 1947, the Palmach and the Irgun, Israel's pre-state militias, targeted the bridges connecting the railway to Lebanon and Syria, the route to Yarmouk that Netanyahu mentioned. They literally blew up anything that enabled the train to function as a circuit of empire. But this act of disruption pales in comparison to the violent devastation that would shortly follow with the partition of Palestine. In 1948, Palestine was officially severed from the region, and Israel began forcibly removing all reminders of Palestine, starting with its people, with over 750,000 Palestinians exiled beyond its borders, and over 150,000 displaced within. And then its buildings, its monuments, its villages, even the names of things like a train were erased and replaced. Palestinians call this event the Nakba, meaning the catastrophe. But the Nakba is also a structure, an ongoing set of relations that continues to fragment, alienate, and erase Palestine and Palestinians. 
After 1948, there was no longer a need for a train connecting Palestine and Syria, Egypt, or Jordan. Israel effectively sealed in its land borders, reorienting its gaze west to the sea in the Mediterranean. And in 1951, the final train left Afula Station. Steel gauge tracks were left to ruin or were repurposed in the building of the new Israeli state. The intentional neglect of infrastructure becomes the material story of the Galilee, where the majority of those few Palestinians that managed to remain or return after 1948 continue to live. As we heard from Yara, these communities found themselves completely cut off from their families, from the Arab world, even their identities, as they would be renamed Israeli Arabs by the new Israeli state. Israel's worked incredibly hard to keep Palestine fragmented. Isolated and contained, Palestinians have perpetually lived in tighter and more surveyed enclosures under colonial and military occupations. But Israel has also treated itself like an island, building up its frontier lines as a fortress, famously calling and producing itself as a villa in the jungle, where the only ways in and out for goods or people have been by sea or air. But here we are, 70 years later, with Israel fantasizing about connection while still building walls, fencing in people, managing movement, and securing and partitioning space and lives. Perhaps where we now need in order to understand these incompatible dynamics is bypass. And for this, we're going to come back to Lala Khalili. So what you see then is all of these different kinds of very concrete, very material, very human involvement in these processes, which are extremely complex. So you have a machine of many moving parts that operates in all sorts of sometimes unpredictable, sometimes quite predictable sorts of ways. Um, But a couple of themes that emerge out of this, which I think uh, ends up being quite clarifying, is number one, the importance, the significance of uh, capital moving transnationally to to the work of these transport infrastructures. And that transnational movement of capital often happens and is facilitated precisely because these large transport infrastructures require such capital investment. The second theme, which is really important to take account of, is the extent to which the work of the people who make these ports, whether at point of construction or at point of use, is uh, delimited, uh, surveilled, and disciplined in order to ensure the smooth functioning of these ports. And then the final uh, element that is, I think, quite important to recognize is that invisible set of infrastructures that make all of this possible. So sets of rules, standards, um, global treaties um, end up being incredibly crucial in the shaping of all of these uh, processes. And a final theme, which I think is quite significant in the making of these infrastructures is precisely because these infrastructures are so crucial to the, to the working of governance and economies. They're also massively subject to forms of coercive surveillance and coercive discipline, whether in the shape of policing, military protection, securitization, etc., or in uh, forms of surveillance, forms of exclusion, the forms of design that actually result in um, unequal application uh, of both benefits and detriments to different communities and different political subjects. To make this a bit more concrete, let's get back on the train. We're going to travel back west to Haifa port and the new container port that we saw shimmering in the background when we started our journey. The new port is run by a Chinese firm, the Shanghai International Port Group, or SIPG. SIPG, in addition to being China's biggest port terminal operator, is part of a global alliance of shipping companies and port operators that control a majority of the world's shipping lanes. These lanes basically direct the flow of global goods, determining which ports, which land routes, which rail lines, and ultimately, which countries are connected to these seemingly endless flows of capital. This is part of what is being dreamed of with the building of the Ha'emek. To be part of these flows is to be relevant to global capitalism, which still transits more than 70% of global trade through shipping lines. And in the Middle East, everyone is competing to become a hub, to be part of these routes, especially since for at least the past decade, the World Bank, the IMF, and the OECD have claimed that a country's ability to link its internal markets to global trade and transport infrastructures has become a proxy for whether or not they are economically viable and worth investing in. China has clearly invested in the idea of Haifa and Israel as a hub and anchor for its trade through the region, and the fantasy being sold through Israel's new railway and the promise of other connective infrastructures to the Middle East via its land borders. But of course, for that fantasy to function, a huge amount of geopolitical and geoeconomic realities, including at the level of everyday politics, don't just need to be ignored. They need to be completely rewritten. Industry professionals would probably put this in different terms as a problem or set of problems to be smoothed out. 
I spoke to Dr. Katie Fox-Hodess, who is a lecturer in industrial relations at Sheffield University and writes about global logistics from the lens of dock workers and other laborers collectively organizing, as she explains. It sort of starts from the premise that global capitalism has been um, to some extent reorganized over the past 50 years through the sort of development of global supply chains and the increasing dependence on just-in-time production and quote-unquote seamless flows across these these supply chains. So basically, this trillion-dollar industry is completely dependent on seamlessness, which, think about it, completely requires the reorganizing of space and workers and lives to support this. But of course, that's not the world we live in. So we need to ask, what happens when the raison d'etre of global transit infrastructures is to ensure goods and capital keep moving at all costs? It clearly means these systems are super vulnerable because disruption is always the Achilles heel of our global economy. And this is exactly what these mega-global actors are afraid of, and they would and do do just about anything to protect the smoothness of these systems from the threat of disruption. Giant robots. Almost every machine you now see is controlled by computer. And these high-tech titans' output is staggering. Back at the SIPG port, we see this fantasy in action. Automated cranes traverse a line of containers on a ship so large it makes you feel like an ant surrounded by skyscrapers. There are few humans in sight. Things work with the perfect symmetry and coordination of a video game, which is actually what the consoles and joysticks back at the command center at the new SIPG port actually do look like. And potential obstacles have already been cleared out. But eastward at the end of the train line, four kilometers shy of the Jordanian border, frictions born of 70 years of colonial enclosures are not so easy to bypass. And yet, after many years, Israel and so many of its global partners are trying hard to make them disappear into the background. There are the physical limits, like the fact that there's no bridge across the Jordan River or a direct link to transit routes on the other side of the border. Although Israel Railways has started planning this bridge, there's still nothing on the other side to meet it. But of course, the political frictions and disruptions are wider and deeper, with many people throughout the region still refusing to accept the colonization of Palestine as a normal thing even as so many of their governments and key capitalist actors have already begun a process of normalization, claiming Israel as a necessary and legitimate partner, stable and secured in an otherwise allegedly insecure region. So what does normalization require or imply vis-a-vis the politics of Palestinian space? I'm coming back to Lala again. It is absolutely crucial that Israel is a settler colonial state with apartheid policies that function vis-a-vis the the people that live in the West Bank and Gaza, with internal policies which are now creating second-class citizens directly, legally, through the nationalities law inside the borders of 48. So you have all of these different regimes of racial control, and any kind of transport infrastructure that crosses this is in effect becoming embedded in sets of racialized political relations that these regimes of control entail. And so I think in a, in a way, the, the fantasy that somehow the villa in the jungle, um, as Herzl called Israel, would apply in the case of transport infrastructures is belied by, by these existing already quite uh, febrile uh, sets of racialized political relations that require enormous amounts of coercion and surveillance and discipline for them to be tamped down, to be sort of, to to have a curtain drawn across them. So the question then becomes who benefits from these sets of social relations and on whom falls the detriment or the damage that these sets of relations create? At one level, who benefits, of course, is the question of global racial capital. Who benefits from creating hierarchies that require, for the functioning of the, the, the capital accumulation, require people to be slotted into these positions that are lesser, that benefit less, that suffer more. So there is a set of a kind of an abstract thinking of racial capitalism. But thinking about it much more com- concretely, because I'm kind of an empiricist, there's also the shipping companies that benefit from this. There's also the state of Israel that benefits from this. There's also the sort of the capital, the capitalists in the Arab countries, which are quite happy to, to, to generate these sets of relations. And so I think in this case, the question of who benefits ends up being much closer to home. On whom does the damage fall? Of course, the protection of these infrastructures creates an entire set of alibis for coercive control by the state. 
um, securitization ends up sort of feeding into a cycle of violence that gives the state the kind of legitimacy it needs um, or it thinks it needs in order to run these infrastructures through protection. One can imagine that this happens at a much greater scale in the context of settler colonialism, in the case of the railway that, that you're studying, precisely because it seems that its function not only as a kind of a theater of uh, local diplomatic friendship, but it is also um, a very concrete modality of enforcing sets of coercive control over the communities through whose lands, through whose habitations, um, this infrastructure crosses. For many years, almost three decades, we did not have a breakthrough. And this week, we had. Everybody in Israel is very excited and we are eager to uh, promote a relationship uh, through the Gulf. We will go and identify some of the best funds in Israel and partner with them, just like we've done in the U.S. and in Europe and in Asia. Go find who the best partners are. Let's partner with them and take a long... So we have this fantasy of a globally connected Israel in a globally connected Middle East. And then, in comes the 2020 Abraham Accords. And suddenly there's this promise of major trade deals between the UAE, other Gulf partners, and Israel. And we're faced with the political opening and concrete possibility of new supply chain infrastructures via previously non-existent land routes that connect the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. And alongside this, we have new possible lines of violence, displacement, and erasure that always inevitably accompany and are legitimized through the securitization of goods and capital through what has already been determined unruly people and spaces. And I can't help but think about how this repurposing of colonial modes of connection and partition becomes just another excuse for enacting coercive practices in Palestine and across the region. So this is clearly what's happening right now. But what I guess I'm trying to say is that Israel has always used infrastructure to contain, police, and choke the flow of movement of Palestinian communities and disconnect them from economic, political, or social and cultural life beyond Palestine. We see this in very tangible ways when we talk about the West Bank and Gaza. You can't miss the wall, the border security towers, the lines of sensors and high-tech cameras lining the transit routes along the edges of the West Bank villages, much less the drones and snipers that pace the massive fence that holds in Gaza. Within the Green Line, containment is less obvious, less visible, but no less tangible. I asked Dr. Hannah Swade to tell us what these containment practices look like on the ground and how they impact and fragment Palestinian communities living around the Ha'emek Line which get little to no benefit from the line that travels through their neighborhoods. Dr. Swade has been a political leader for more than 40 years and is the founder and chair of the Arab Center for Alternative Planning in the Galilee, a community organization working for the planning rights of Palestinians living within the Green Line. He has also been a partner in my research project about the train from the beginning. Well, starting with a critical view of the Palestinian community on uh, their land, and the fear and the concern that the state is planning all the time how to confiscate and how to control the Palestinian, the Arab lands, there's a fear uh, from each new uh, infrastructure plan or project, like new roads, new railroads, uh, and other sorts of, uh, of infrastructure. And we noticed that in most of these uh, infrastructure projects, especially in the areas where uh, there are Arab towns and villages and Arab population, every infrastructure project actually is accompanied by land confiscation from Arab owners. If you uh, talk about infrastructure uh, for Arab communities in many occasions. In most occasions, it means also confiscation of land. Because we have the experience of Trans-Israel Highway, for example, uh, with the railroad uh, lines, with um, uh, gas pipelines, with, uh, with now a water desalination project in the north. Every single infrastructure project includes a paragraph of confiscation of land from Arab owners. It's an equation. Infrastructure equals confiscation of Arab lands. And, you know, despite the fact that we might get some benefit from few of the infrastructure projects, the driving force for these infrastructure projects are not the interest of the Arab communities. 
But as Omar and Lala already pointed out, friction and disruption are always part of the story of infrastructure. And what happens when those contained in settler colonial space organize around disruption? Not just the disruption of the physical infrastructure, but disruption of the containers that fragment Palestine and Palestinians. In Israel and the West Bank, streets normally bustling with activity were empty today as Palestinians went on a general strike, an unusual joint action to show solidarity with Gaza and to protest their own treatment by Israel. The strike is a must on all of us, as youth, to take part in this strike, to stop working for at least a day, to create some change in Jerusalem and the country. Last May, while SIPG was just beginning to test its crane operators and open its pier to incoming ships, as a new $10 billion trade deal was being signed between the UAE and Israel, and the Israel Railways Company was making its plans for the bridge across the river, Palestinian protesters and solidarity movements across the world were in the streets. First in response to attempts to expel Palestinians out of East Jerusalem, and in particular the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, so they could be replaced with Jewish nationalist settlers— Alongside increased militarization, violence, and blockades in the old city to prevent Muslims from visiting the city during Ramadan, and then in response to air bombardments of Gaza, where hundreds were killed and tens of thousands displaced as buildings and infrastructure were razed to the ground. This is a recording I made in Nazareth at a protest led by Palestinian youth on the 18th of May. It was part of a day of actions aimed at disruption and connection, part of what organizers called the Dignity and Hope Strike. The call for the strike was part of a large manifesto. I'm just going to read a piece of it. This is how Israel imprisoned us in prisons of isolation, some of us caged in the Oslo prison in the West Bank, some in the citizenship prison in the part of Palestine occupied in 1948, some of us isolated by the monstrous siege and ongoing devastating assault on the Gaza prison, some of us isolated under the systematic Judaization campaigns in the Jerusalem prison, and some isolated from Palestine altogether, dispersed across all corners of the globe. It is now time for this tragedy to end. Addressing all the people of Palestine, the moment of movement is framed as a call to refuse and end the geographic, political, and economic fragmentation that Israel has worked hard to make normal in Palestine. Fragmentation, disruption, disconnection, and a physical laceration of the landscape that are, and always have been, essential to colonial and capitalist infrastructures, and which are the epitome of Israel's Ha'emic train project. I walked in the streets with young, energized, joyful Palestinians from inside the Green Line, dancing, singing, chanting. In these streets, Palestine is here and present and unerasable. The noise went on for hours. Later, when the children and teenagers went home, their elder brothers and sisters jumped into cars and honked horns in a procession that lasted into the middle of the night. A cacophony of sound, impossible not to feel it as it reverberated across the center of the city. I remember thinking, so this is what refusal actually sounds like. In the aftermath of these events, Palestinians called their movement the Unity Intifada. Yara said something similar when I talked to her about it. I think the unity intifada was a disruption of the regime of fragmentation. That is one of the, the sort of key mechanisms in which Israel controls the Palestinian people. And I think it did create a dent in that. The unity intifada did do something that is going to be very hard to undo. It sort of broke a lot of barriers of fear. It reasserted a collective Palestinian um, experience. And I think it will be very hard to undo that. But I think also we have to go beyond sort of the, in terms of disruption, we can't just stay in the epistemic realm. You know, we can't forego that discussion on physical disruption and what it means to disrupt the Israeli regime on the ground in Palestine. What, it does, it, what does it mean to disrupt the actual infrastructure? Three days later, I made the recording of the train journey that you heard at the start of this episode. On the same day, I visited the SIPG port. Bombs continued to fall on Gaza, and the unity protests continued alongside, some only a few kilometers away from the port or the tracks, but they felt like worlds away from one another. The trade and transit infrastructure at the center of my story, the materials that undergird and make possible the economic veins of the settler project in Palestine, continued to work, undisturbed. Infrastructures that were once a key site of sabotage, which is why that train was originally bombed the Jewish militia in 1946 and 47. This has become completely disconnected from the front lines of resistance as violence and refusal concentrate around other borders. 
The core of my work is to bring attention to just how much those two worlds are of course connected, and to bring into conversation the twin projects of circulation and disruption. Because blockage and blockades in Gaza, walls and checkpoints in the West Bank, over-policing and expulsions in Jerusalem, and jurisdictional violence and neglect in Palestinian localities within the Green Line, enable and are enabled by the smooth and uninterrupted circulation of Israeli goods, ideas, and capital. Something imagined in and made acutely concrete through this train to nowhere as it evolves into a fantasy train to everywhere. In my various interviews, Yara's question kept circulating. What does disruption look like? What does it do? What does it take? And each one kept coming back to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement and different actions that do the work of disruption and international solidarity in material and symbolic terms. During the Unity Intifada, we saw some genuine examples of this. In Durban, dock workers collaborated with South African BDS coalitions by refusing to unload Israeli ships as an act of solidarity with Sheikh Jarrah. In Ravenna, Italy, the same thing happened, with port workers refusing to load weapons being transferred to Israel in solidarity with Gaza. So this is part of a, a global campaign, and the unions have come on board. Um, and in future, the plan is that we will not be uh, offloading Zim lines or any other Israeli ship at the Durban port or any other South African port. This is what uh, BDS is all about, a global campaign to isolate the Israeli state, and this is where it starts. In my interview with Katie, she reflected on her years of working with these types of actions, both as an organizer herself and as a researcher. She's constantly thinking about how laborers situated at particular nodes along these supply chains could potentially enact and contribute to social and political change and how to strategize accordingly. And she had a particularly insightful way of thinking about this. I've just thought about it sort of more at the practical level of, you know, this really, this actually creates losses, like financial losses that are meaningful. So it's like big bang for your buck, right? Like if you blockade a ship, there's there are serious financial losses um, and it's, it's really disruptive to business. So what we learned from Katie is that collective organizing at particular fault lines and pressure points along the routes of supply chains can be hugely effective. And while logistic systems work to fragment anyone that might block their path, whether it's laborers or civil society groups or even just ordinary communities that refuse to move out of their way, Logistical infrastructures and supply chains also present powerful political opportunities for turning connection and disruption on their heads. But I want to come back to Yara's own answers to this question, and we're going to end the episode with her incredibly moving words. The Israeli regime gets a green light from the international community, from countries around the world to do whatever it pleases. And so in the absence of uh, governments, of, of political leaders having the courage to to stand up to Israel, the, the people must do it. And so I think it requires also, you know, thinking about local politics and changing uh, local politics to more radical politics, to one that is more uh, more inclusive of all these uh, global struggles for liberation. Because the liberation of Palestine isn't just going to happen on its own in complete disregard of what happens elsewhere in the world. There has to be a huge global shift in politics uh, for the liberation of Palestine to happen. And so that requires a massive global collective effort um, to turn our world into a more just uh, and fairer place. Shari, what an episode. That was absolutely incredible. I can't believe how well you have been able to demonstrate through a train and a train track the violence, obviously, of the Israeli state, but also show the the detail in which we come to the conclusion that there is an apartheid regime and experience and infrastructure environment that has been created. I think it's as simple as that. And you've been able to do that with a train like that is the beauty of this project in terms of material crimes and infrastructure so first of all congratulations <laughs> the thing i would want to say about that is like it's the first thing that where i get the finished product of something and 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 it actually 
feels something we can all be proud of, Mm -hmm. you know, and I know that that's because of the type of collaboration that went into it, like that, you know, one person did writing and somebody else had ideas for it. But then also we had technical people that made it come together. And I'm actually, and literally in academia, you know this, like you write something, you never want to look at it again. And actually, I want to listen to this over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was, yeah, I'm really happy with the the way that the story came together. Off the back of what Chantel said, why did you why did you choose the train as a particular form of infrastructure to show the power relations in Israel? The thing about that train and what where the project actually started because it's it's something that started obviously before we started thinking about a podcast. It's, I've been thinking about this train for a really long time to the point that we joke that this is my train, which is terrible and ownership <laughs> is not really what I mean. But like the thing about this train is that it literally goes nowhere, right? Like it literally goes nowhere, it does nothing. No one was looking at it. It's not connected to any of the systems of violence that we normally think about with Palestine. We, there, you know, it, it, and it completely disappears into the background. And I was really triggered by the language around it. And specifically, even in the episode, I play a small clip of, you know, then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talking about this train as a peace train. Um, and it just triggered me. I'm like, it's so incongruous with what that train is, but also so incongruous with with everything else we think about Palestine. So it started to just get me to think about, like, how does mobility and circuits and smoothness operate alongside all of the incredible, spectacular violence that we see on the border, that we see in places where Palestinians live? And why was this train so disconnected from that reality? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how these projects of mobility and immobility are so twinned to each other and need each other, that in order for something to move in that smoothness, it needs to disappear, right? It needs to be completely invisible for it to operate without anyone looking at it. And, and and it literally was that idea that no one is looking at this type yeah. of violence. Kind of fits well with the idea of infrastructure, something that you don't see, but it enables whatever it to go on, life or whatever it will be. But also what I kind of got from your episode was the linking the infrastructure to the past. So this is a train line that moves temporarily. Right. So the thing is about also writing that episode is that I think I came to really understand that temporality of a train and all of our and all infrastructures, really, that they kind of have these multiple layers of past, present and future. Um, And I kind of came to understand that, you know, infrastructures like trains, like ports, like highways are things that kind of have a past, many of them come from colonial past. And this train in particular was initially allegedly created in like a like as part of the Hijaz period, which is the Ottoman train line that was built there. And then you have a British moment where the British mandate comes in and, and kind of rewrites the path of that train because of the connections that it wanted to make to other parts of its kind of sea empire. And then you have also an Israeli present that is kind of trying to rewrite that past as if there was no Palestine part of it. And then you have these infrastructures of the future, which is about rewriting the future again without Palestine or without disruption or without communities that might be in the way. And and that is all of these things kind of get folded into this material thing of a train track and the trains that run on it. They embody both past and the future, right? And there's binaries, but it depends on the political narrative at the time, what one you focus on. And so with the project that I guess Nihami's uh, interested in is focused on, on a future that erases that past. Yeah, that and that is kind of the train that, let's say, that Israel is writing. Mm-hmm. But what also became really interesting to think about with the episode is is the idea of a kind of Palestine futurity or Palestinian futurity, like that despite like that way of writing the past, present, and future as if there's no Palestine and the fragmentation that goes into the train or the fragmentation that goes into Israel's creation of its state as if it could be completely you know, disruptive to an existing Palestine, you had, you suddenly start to connect to the idea that Palestinians are refusing that fragmentation and like thinking about their future as, it, as kind of in unity or, and that, that becomes the opposite of this infrastructure of, of disruption, right? Like, I know that sounds really abstract and hard to get to, but like, to me, that's the thing that kept coming through with thinking about the train as this thing of alienation that it kind of cuts through, it deconnects, reconnects for the purpose of like circulating things, circulating goods, circulating people, circulating Israel against an existing Palestine that it sought to disrupt and fragment any race. And that the whole point, I guess, where I got to with the episode is like, actually what we see is is a Palestine that continues to exist 
exist and continues to resist fragmentation and reunify itself against those kind of apartheid and settler colonial practices. I think, um, Shari, what you've said there also like really feeds into the the crux of what the, the, the intellectual project and purpose of material crimes is about the series about showing the violence of perpetrators through infrastructure, but also showing that always already resistance and what what better case study to present whilst we're, this is still a live issue is that of the of the Palestinian struggle and I think that that is something like when you listen to the episodes when you listen to your episode and you listen to other episodes like you have this sort of sense of outrage about how exploitative and oppressive states mainly uh, nation states um, in utilising infrastructure to harm people but that the hope that comes through, I think, in all the episodes is those that are resisting. And I think you really captured that well in this episode. Kind of image of resistance that we see, especially in this part of the world in relation to the Palestinians, is always associated with violence almost. Mm-hmm. But resistance can come in many forms in different ways. And this, this is what I kind of get through the kind of through the podcast that you can hear them. There's different ways of organising to resist this form of oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that trains have always, I guess, in in imperial histories, trains have always kind of been a target by anti-colonial struggle, right? Infrastructure has always been the, the infrastructure that makes empire work becomes the infrastructure that you target. And the thing I also thought was important about focusing on this train is that we need to be reminded to look at those infrastructures sometimes, you know, and we learn from other kind of contexts of settler colonialism where where infrastructure is still something that you aim at, is still something that you target through anti-colonial struggle. And that led me to really talk with, let's say, one of my, I guess, contributors or, you know, one of the interlocutors that I spoke to for the episode. Her name is um, Dr. Yara Hawari, who um, spoke incredibly about other modes of disruption. And she pointed again and again at the material disruptions that you need to these types of circuits of of capital or of just making Israel normal. So one of the things to think about Palestinians as, you know, in terms of like against that process of fragmentation is to think with boycott, divestment, and sanctions as a movement, BDS, which kind of thinks about all Palestinians as part of a movement, as co-resistors in a movement, and, and thinking about the way that that actually operates in both material and symbolic ways, that it's not just something we talk about, it's something we do and are active in. That's powerful, Shari. Thank you so much. And we hope you enjoyed the episode, listeners. I really hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) You've been listening to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes, Season 1. Please follow, rate, subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform.